0: Well, we continue to move along here in our study through Galatians and here in chapter, chapter three, um, you know, we're about halfway there and Paul's been, been making this argument and, and Paul's attitude seems to be almost like he's saying like, how can you not see this? How, why are we even having this conversation? This seems so obvious and so real. And so the argument that he's laid out is that there's only one gospel. There's not multiple gospels. There's only one gospel, and it is the gospel of grace. And he says, you know, the evidence he gives, he says, like, everyone, you know, when, when I first came and I was talking to Peter and I was talking to James, I was talking to the others, we, we all agreed. This was it. We all said we've had the same experience. And then all of a sudden these false brothers come into the church and everybody's getting, you know, taken away. The second thing he said is, you know, there's this double blessing that comes from the gospel of grace. One, justification by faith. Now justification by faith, you, you, you don't experience that in an experiential sense. You don't feel justification by faith um, you know, maybe you get this sense of peace. But, but really, this is, this, is a, this is a standing. This is something that's happened to you. But the second blessing you do feel, and as a matter of fact, the second blessing that I'm, that, that's being talked about here is what confirms the justification by faith. And that is the Holy Spirit in your life. It says what you've experienced in Christ, that's the proof. You know what happened. I know what happened. We were all there. We weren't making this up. We were experiencing what the Holy Spirit was doing in our lives. And in fact, it wasn't just in that moment. It's, it's ever since then. He's appealing to that, to that feeling he knows they have. That they, they want to be more like Christ. They, they long to know him more. They want it to be True. And the truth to be so alive in them. And then he's made this point of, that he ended with last time and he's going to come back to and that is that, that the inclusion of the Jewish and the Gentile together, the inclusion of the Jew and the Gentile in the kingdom has always been God's plan. It's not plan B. It's always been God's plan. And so he goes back into the Hebrew scriptures and he shows them. It's always been the plan. In fact, is kind of a little side note here what, what the promise is to Abraham, the way that the promise is made that God is blessing Abraham so that Abraham will be able to bless the nations, that, that promise. And the promise that we as believers can inherit. Understand this. That same type of promise is what he does with us. God blesses us with salvation. God blesses us with justification. He blesses us with the Holy Spirit. He blesses us with all of this so that we might bless the nations. He doesn't do it just just so you can have a good life. He doesn't do it just so that you can get through the troubled times in your life. He does it for that, and thank God he does. But he, he blesses us so that we might bless the nations. The more I have been just like studying and thinking about this, Paul's argument, and and the thing that that just is... Confusing him, you know, he doesn't understand all that, that's happening. I hear myself. Am I the only one or do, am I hearing voices in my head that sound very soothing? And. He, as I think about it, I've, you know, I started to think about comparison of the gospel of grace and the gospel of the law. And one of the big, big distinctions, and it's one of the things that, that Paul is, is eventually going to let them know, is that if you're going to hold on to a gospel of law, if you're going to hold on to a gospel of works, make no mistake, that's you trying to hold on to something. But if you take the gospel of grace... The gospel of grace is God holding on to you. Are you going to trust in your own abilities to keep the law? Are you going to trust in your own abilities to, to, to do what is right and hold on? Or are you going to trust in the creator of the universe to hold on to you? And the Holy Spirit... The Holy Spirit is—is is that evidence in our lives? You just saw a photograph up there of the of this rope ladder game that you see in carnivals. You can show it again now. Um, and this—if you ever have anybody ever seen this game, the carnival where you know you you have to try to climb to the top, and what usually happens is you just kind of get kind of flipped over. And, of course, you make it to the top, you get a prize. If you don't make it to the top, uh, you just spent two bucks or five bucks or ten bucks. Depends where you are. where you are. And, you know, I, I, I've never done this, but I always like to go and watch. I used to actually, my, uh, my job in high school was actually working in the carnivals, and we worked in the games and stuff. And so I realized, don't play those games. But I like to watch people try to play those games. Um, and... You know, I, I would be at either Six Flags or something like that. I'd watch. And there'd be all these people like trying. And of course, the, the more like athletic, you know, especially the guys thought they were, the more they thought they could just do it. And of course, they're always just falling. And I don't know if they did this on purpose, but they always had the most unathletic person working the game. Kind of dumpy looking not you know if you've ever been this person I'm not insulting you well maybe I am but not intentionally but you know they're, they're like they, they just look like they're nothing and eventually the, the really athletic guys will be like oh it's impossible it's a trick it can't be done you got to show us some evidence that it can be done and then the dumpy unathletic guy just goes tuk, 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 right up to the top and they're all like and of course, now their male pride's been injured, so what do you do when your male pride's injured? We waste more money trying to, <laughs> trying to get up to the top, right? But it's one of those things. like, uh, you know, at first, they thought they could do it in their own power, and then they weren't seeing any evidence that anybody could do it, so of course they assumed it can't be done, and then someone sees that, shows them. It can be done. I think that's how the world is with the gospel. I think a lot of people think they can work out their own salvation. They can, you know, they can be good. They can be righteous. And then they keep failing, they keep failing, they keep failing, and then they come to the conclusion nobody can. And then not only does Jesus show us the way, He leaves his church here. And I'm not saying we're the dumpy, unathletic looking person, but maybe we are. But we show the world, we show the world that the gospel of grace, it works. You can see the fulfillment of the gospel in the church. Pretty high, pretty high calling. Pretty tough job. But again, God didn't leave us on our own. He, he gave us his word. He gave us his spirit. Gave us each other. So here's Paul trying to help the Galatians understand this. He's trying to help them understand that The gospel of the law is not just a variation on the true gospel, it's contrary to it. You cannot believe in a gospel of works or a gospel of the law and still believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so here in the middle of this letter, Paul says this in verse 15, he says, to give a human example, brothers... He's telling you up front, I'm going to illustrate this for you. I'm going to try to help you understand it. He says, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So what is he saying? He's saying, you know, at least 400 years before Moses, God made this covenant with Abraham. And if you remember that, we talked about it last week and the week before. The covenant was based on faith. God told Abraham, this is what I'm going to do. Abraham believed it. And then he obeyed. And the Bible tells us God accounted that to him as righteousness. 400 years later or so, the law comes to Moses. What Paul is trying to help them understand is that the law didn't, didn't replace the covenant. There wasn't this Abrahamic covenant and then for whatever reason, things didn't work out and so then came Moses and this was a new covenant. Say, so no, that's not it at all. And so he uses, like he says, a man-made um, illustration. He's talking about contracts, covenants, agreements, wills, things that happened in their day as they happened in our day. And he says, once they're ratified, once an authority has said, this is ratified, it's done. It's not going to change. And so he says here, God ratified it. God ratified that covenant. He ratified it with Abraham. And then he says, it's being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The Mosaic law wasn't to fulfill the covenant. It wasn't to replace the covenant. He's speaking... To people who believe in Jesus, understand this. He's speaking to people who he knows have experienced faith in Jesus Christ. Because if you were to say, like, you know, what if he was talking to a bunch of Pharisees about this? What if he was talking about to a bunch of Jewish people who hadn't become Christians? You know, they they might not agree with it. It's true. They might not. They might not agree with his interpretation. That's not who he's talking to. And what he's ultimately trying to get them to understand is that if you believe the law supersedes the covenant of faith, if that's what you believe, then that nullifies not just Abraham, but it nullifies Jesus Christ. Everything that you say Jesus Christ is, everything you say Jesus Christ has done for you, everything you understand about the crucifixion and the resurrection all of that, it's it's nullified. It's a gospel of law. It's a gospel of works. That's what it is. So on, on the negative side, he's saying, "Hey, if you want to believe in the, you know, the law, then okay. If you want to keep coming up with your own, um, you know, rules, you know, and and we." we do this even as Christians sometimes we do this we want to reduce Christianity down to some some rules to keep some rituals but we don't want to let you know God decide those things uh, you know we let him like give like a big set and we would just pick out the ones that we really think are important and sometimes we add a few of our own no no It's not how it works. See, on the positive side, what Paul is saying is that Jesus Christ fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant. Jesus Christ is the way that Abraham became the one who would bless many nations. Because of what Abraham did 1,500 or 2,000 years earlier, Jesus is fulfilling it. They're connected. I'm sometimes amused, um, sometimes saddened when I, when I read like um, you know I'll read like an article in, in a magazine or online or something that that you know talks about how um, how closely re- related Judaism and Christianity are as though that should be surprising to us. Let me just tell you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it should never surprise you how closely related Judaism is to Christianity. Not saying they're the same thing. What I'm saying is what we find in Scripture is Jesus Christ is fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. Why wouldn't they be related? Notice, Paul's not saying Jesus Christ is replacing the Abrahamic covenant. No. It's the fulfillment. The offspring that would come. He's here. You guys all know him. His name's Jesus. Well, Paul continues. He says, why then the law? Why then the law? I mean, great question. You know, he just said the Abrahamic covenant's still enforced and we had this law. He's like, well, why the law? Why do we have to have the law? And then he says something weirder. He says, it was added because of transgressions. In fact, in Romans, he says it even weirder. He says, so that then righteousness would indeed be by the law. A lot of things going on here. A lot of things going on here. And this first answer to the question, why then the law? There's a lot of ink that's been used to try to explain paul's immediate answer was added because of transgressions and and if you want to hear more about that i really invite you to come on wednesday nights when we have time to unpack it but this is the way i understand it this is the way that um, i think paul is using it at least one of the ways and that is that the law reveals our sinful nature the law reveals our sinful nature If you say sin increases where the law is, or the law comes so that sin would increase, some of us would be like, well, God, that's really cruel. Why would you, why would you give something that's, that would increase sin? That's really not the point of it. The point of it is there's something in our sinful nature... That when we're told what not to do, we want to do it. Think about the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. They obsess about the thing they can't do instead of enjoying all the things they can do. They're given so much freedom They're given so much blessings, but they obsess about the one thing they can't do. How are we any different? One of the main things the law does is it it reveals this, this sinful nature in us. It also reveals the sinful nature in us in that God had to tell us these things. It's the kind of picture I get is like, um, you know, we we're talking about this, I think on, on Sunday night, but you know, the picture I kind of get is like, if, if you've ever gone bowling, and like back in the day when I used to go bowling, if you were a bad bowler, then your ball went in the gutter, Right? Or, if you're a really bad bowler, it went in the gutter three lanes down, right? But, you know, that's what happened. And then, you know, because I think bowling was trying to survive, they decided they needed to make it more fun for people who never bowled. so they put those bumpers in the gutter, right? So the ball, boom, boom. I mean, some people still managed to get it in the gutter, but for the most part, it would keep the ball on the lane to go towards the pin and at least you would knock down one or two pins and then you felt like you'd accomplish something even though all of us old school people were like you didn't accomplish anything, you just hit the bumpers, right? Now I sometimes think that's part of what the law does because our nature says we want to go this way and this way and this way and this way and we never want to go down to the objective and the law helps us you know, keeps us in that line. In a sense, as we're going to learn a little bit later, the law kind of keeps us safe. But make no mistake, it reveals our sinful nature. And then Paul makes this remarkable statement at the end where he says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And he says, no, the whole point is God is one. There's not multiple gods out there. There's not a God who's disagreeing with himself or changing his mind. No, God is one. And then he says, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. He's saying law cannot give life. If it could, okay, righteousness could come from keeping the law. But he's saying, it cannot. There's not one law that gives life. Life can only come from the life giver. And God is the life giver. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the life giver. Law cannot give you life this is where Paul summarizes what we already realized a couple chapters ago. Even if you could keep the law perfectly, you would still not be righteous and you would not have eternal life. That's not what the law is for. The law cannot give life. It cannot give righteousness. It's not just because we can't keep the law, it's impossible. You know, all of you who had to take a COVID test, you know, for whatever reason, you all know that when you take the COVID test, that by the time you get the results, you could have been exposed to COVID again. But we know the test has a purpose. But we also know that just because you have a test doesn't protect you. It's not the purpose of the test. Test is there to test who's negative, who's positive. It's not a vaccination. We can keep it straight. We know what it's for. But for some reason, we like to think that the law can somehow save us. Even if we make it really hard, and of course, the harder we make it, the more we feel like we've earned that salvation. It's like, no. The law is like the COVID test. It's not there to save you. It's not its purpose. The other thing that we have to understand is that the law, and if we talk specifically about the Mosaic law, The law does not require anything. doesn't require anything that you would not otherwise do in the covenant. Put it this way. The law doesn't really require anything that you wouldn't otherwise do as a Christian. You know, we just look at the Ten Commandments. Think about the Ten Commandments. Think about each one and think about like, hmm, it says thou shalt not steal. Now that I've become a Christian, I think Jesus is telling me steal. Oh, it says thou shalt not kill. You know, now that I've become a Christian, the Holy Spirit is telling me I should murder people. By the way, if the Holy Spirit is telling you that you should murder people, please identify yourself so we can make sure that we protect ourselves and get you the help you need. Because we know that's not the Holy Spirit. What we read in the law is not going to tell us to do something that goes against who we are in Christ. But the law doesn't save us. The law doesn't give us life, and the law doesn't give us righteousness. Paul gives us a couple pictures of what the law does. He says, But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. It's really important to see that verse 24 where it says, so then. Because the so then is connecting the two images. A lot of times people treat these images separately. The first image about being imprisoned and the second image about being a guardian. But in Paul's mind, they're connected. In fact, one follows after the other. When he thinks about imprisonment here, he's not thinking about imprisonment where, like, you know, you've been, you know, you've been conquered or enslaved or something like that. He's when we tie it to the idea of guardian. What we see is that the law came to protect. The law came to guide. for how long? Until Jesus Christ came and made justification by faith possible. That's what the law is for. It's there to guide us, there to protect us. Again, you know, if your house was like my house or if you grew up in a house where your parents you know, wanted you to be safe, sometimes they had rules that they didn't bother to explain to you. In fact, sometimes they did things that might have felt made you feel like you were a prisoner. You know, they put you in that, that cage thing. Yeah, we call it a crib, but all babies know what it really is. It's a prison, right? They put those gates up, right? You know... Why are you not letting me roam free, Mom, right? We do it, and we don't feel the need to explain it to them because, you know, we're trying to take care of them. But again, you might worry if you came to my house and saw my daughter's bedrooms and still saw, you know, cages around their beds or, you know having little designated areas that they couldn't get out of. You'd worry about that because, you know, they're adults. But when they were kids, when they are babies, understandable. That's what Paul is trying to help us understand. And so with this kind of negative view of being captive and then this little more positive view about being a guardian and by guardian, he's talking, about, he's talking about what was usually a household slave. And the household slave had a job. And the job was basically to take care of the usually the son, to make sure the son um, got ready for school, made it to school. Sometimes the slave would actually sit there during the school day until, this, until it was done. And then when they go home he would make sure that, that the son would study and review and, you know, learn what he's supposed to learn. And the whole point was, you don't need this guardian for your whole life. You just needed him for a period of time. It's a picture of the law. Why the law? Because we can't really be trusted on our own. I think there's truth in this even when we're, when we're new in our faith, when we're young in our faith. When we're young in our faith, you know, the Bible tells us we have the Holy Spirit. tells, tells us we really have all the Holy Spirit we're ever going to get. But that doesn't mean we actually know how to live and what to do. We need help. It's one of the, you know, one of the reasons I think especially early in our Christian lives, you know, we need to be a little bit more regimented. We need to set aside time every day to pray and to be in God's word. We need to make sure being in fellowship and worship with other Christians, it's on a schedule. And we don't always fully know why we're doing it. But we need to do it. Because left on our own, we're either not going to know what to do or we're just not going to do it. We need that help. We need that guidance. But the thing we have to be careful of is that 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 doesn't become permanent. If you get up every morning and you pray and you read God's word because, you know, you're a new believer and you know that you need to be in God's word and you need to pray and you need to be intentional about it, then that's, that's fine. But if you've been a Christian for 25, 30 years and you get up every morning and you pray and you, and you read God's word and you don't do it. Because Christ is alive in you. You don't do it because the scripture is so rich. And that personal time with God is so powerful. You're just doing it because that's what Christians are supposed to do. You you should worry. Because at some time, some point in time, the good habits need to feed us in such a way that they really become an expression of who we are in Christ otherwise it just will become empty ritualism and tradition we'll go back to being governed by by the law by works We need, we, we need help. Uh, that's, that's not in debate. Even as believers, we need help. Paul's making the point about the law in the bigger scheme of things, in historic, um, in, in, in the world, and, and how the law was there to, to help us get to the time of Jesus Christ. But I think there's a, this ongoing role in our lives that we need, But understand, if you need certain things to help protect and guide you until you grow in your faith, they need to lead to Jesus Christ. They need to lead to a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. Otherwise, the things become the faith. And there's nothing wrong with any of this. There's nothing wrong with reading your Bible. There's nothing wrong with praying. There's nothing wrong with doing it every morning or every evening or morning and evening and lunchtime. There's nothing wrong with that. What makes it wrong is when it becomes an end unto itself and it stops pointing you and leading you to Jesus Christ. A deeper relationship with him. I sometimes use an analogy of how I understand what it means to become a Christian. And it's kind of a modern analogy. But it's, you know, it's the analogy of that, that when we become Christians, we become, you know, we're the upgrade. We're human 2.0. You know, Adam, Adam and Eve, they were they're human 1.0. And then the software got corrupted. And so what, what, you know, what God does through Jesus Christ is, is we get the upgrade. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we're made a new creation. We're not made the same creation. It's not just returning back to, you know, a reboot. But we get an upgrade. But even though we have the upgrade, we don't know what to do with it. I used to have a friend who, who would, you know, back in the day, those of you who are younger, can't imagine the sufferings that we went through in the 90s. But, you know, every time there was an upgrade to Windows, he was a Windows guy. Every time there was an upgrade to Windows, he was like standing in line for like a day to get the upgrade. Oh, and then he'd be talking to me about it. And I asked him the annoying question one time. You know of the current version of Windows? what percentage do you think you're actually using? You want to go get the new thing, but you're not even using the thing that you have. Because it's not enough just to add more software to your computer. It's not enough just to get the latest version if you're not using it. And so a lot of Christians, they get upgraded but they never use it, they never develop it. And it's funny because the way we would learn to use software better is really similar to you know, the Christian life. If I get new software and I want to use it, well, I can just try and use it. But if I really want to know how to use it, you know what I might do? I might actually get the software manual maybe actually read it. I might actually talk to other people who have this software. I might search online for tutorials. I might even go to a class that teaches me how to use it. And then I would just keep, be, I would just keep using it. And then all of a sudden, this software can do way more than it could before. And it would be really dumb of me to say, like, You know, with this weird thing that's happening to my computer, Microsoft Word keeps being able to do more things. It's amazing. It couldn't do this before, but now it can. That would be a dumb thing to say because it's not true. It could always do it. I just didn't know how. When we grow in our faith, when we grow in our faith, it's not that we're getting more of God. We're just learning to be who we already are in Christ. We're learning to love the way we've been empowered to love. We're learning to, to live in the Spirit the way that we've already been equipped to do. So we grow. Software doesn't get better. Our understanding our usage our experience gets better ultimately paul leads back to this really important point and he says for as many as you of you as were baptized into christ have put on christ there is neither jew nor greek there is neither slave nor free there is no male and female for you are all one in christ jesus And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. He's saying, look, guys, I don't understand how you're abandoning the gospel of grace. I don't understand why you are being attracted to the gospel of law. I'm explaining to you how you cannot have both. It's one or the other. I'm explaining to you that if you accept this gospel of the law that you're being taught and you're being attracted to, you're canceling out everything else that you know and that you've experienced. But let me tell you, one of the most important things that you are losing is you are losing the unity that we now have in Jesus Christ. You're losing this unity. Oneness that we can have where there is no Jew nor Greek. There is no slave nor free. There is no male and female. Those walls are gone. And you know, when he's, when he's saying this to the Galatian Christians, most of the Galatian Christians are Gentiles. Many of them might have been what they called um, God-fearing In the Bible, it tells them, it says they're God-fearing Gentiles. In other words, they they believed in in Yahweh. They would would go to the synagogues. They They would go to the temple. But the way that the scriptures were being interpreted and the way it was being practiced, they knew that they would always be on the outside looking in. They knew that even if they fully converted to Judaism, they would never be fully accepted because they were ethnically not Jewish. They knew that. That doesn't even talk about how, you know, the, the, the gender issues and the, and the socioeconomic issues. It wasn't just a, a Jewish thing that, that would come up sometimes. You sometimes read about, like, a, a prayer that would sometimes be prayed by some of the, the Jewish men. And, it, and we kind of take it in the wrong way, but it's not good in any way. But they would actually, you know, they would pray, you know, thank God that I wasn't born a, a Gentile a woman or a slave. And they were saying it not so much because they were trying to put these people down. They were saying it because they were actually, they were actually like kind of happy that they could worship God, they could be a full part of the kingdom. They were recognizing that these other three groups were not. Well, the Greeks had similar statements. You go all the way back to some of the you know, great philosophers in, in Greek history, and they had similar statements. It was always these three things. It was always... Ethnicity, But instead of saying, you know, thank God I was not born a Gentile, they would say, thank God I wasn't born a non-Greek. I wasn't born a barbarian. It would be gender, and it would be socioeconomic status. Paul's statement here reverses all that. He says Jesus Christ came to reverse all that. We're not to divide ourselves up, we're not to say like these people are always going to be on the outside and these people are inside. It's like, no. In Christ, you've been baptized in Christ, you've put Christ on, which is kind of the, the picture of putting on clothes, that when we've put on Christ, when we've been baptized into Christ, we're one in Christ Jesus. He's not saying we're the same He's not saying that, you know, that we're all androgynous, that we all somehow are, are, are equal in being identical. He's not erasing the distinction. He's erasing the division. And he's already showed that when you follow a gospel of law, those divisions immediately come back up. Or new ones crop up. Because over here, there's going to be the group that says, you know, we keep this part of the law better than those guys over there. And those guys over there are like, we keep this part of the law better than those people back there. And everybody starts comparing, you know, who's keeping the law the best. Division happens. Pride is there. Paul's saying, this is why it cannot be gospel of law. It cannot be works. You want unity? Unity comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. Because in faith in Jesus Christ, when we say we're equal, it doesn't mean we all stand like this. We're equal. No, it's we're on our face before Jesus Christ. We're equal because we're down here, not because we're up here. People cannot understand this. It is at the foot of the cross, in humility and brokenness, that we're equal. Not because we're so awesome and we're so great and we recognize the awesomeness and greatness in each other. We're missing the point of the gospel, if that's the case. No. We're one because We start here, and then we're raised up by Christ. We're one because he's made us new. Because he's poured out his love. And how else would I look at another object of grace if I understand myself as an object of grace? I wouldn't look at somebody I want to push away, somebody I want to divide over. It's everything. It's what makes the difference. It's why we have to guard against the gospel of the law. See, the world needs to see that. The world needs to see the gospel fulfilled, not just in your life and my life, but in our lives. How we look at one another, how we treat one another, the unity that we have. The love that we share to one another. Not just love we feel or think about, but we actually share. Something kind of interesting, kind of special happened last night over here on the lawn. And I'm sorry that so many people missed it. But because of, you know, the possible storms that were coming, the, you know, we came back early from camp. And I wasn't somebody, you know, you guys know my views on camping. But I wasn't somebody that spent the whole time at the camp. I was there yesterday and hanging out with some people. But what happened here? About 25 or 30 of your brothers and sisters just gathered for a time of worship. Time of Fellowship. moments of unity that we have and you know we can come up with so many reasons so many reasons to keep our distance so many reasons just to congregate with people that we like or people who are like us but this is what the world needs to see more of He needs to see more of the diverse body of Christ, united in love, united in service, walls torn down. I never understand why God chose to do it the way he did. But this is the way he's chosen. And he's chosen us. And my prayer is that God will continue to unite us, not just so we can have a special church, but so that the world will see what happens when the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms lives.